welcome to Conversations About Life. And she left him in 1947. I was nine years old. And that, of course, had considerable effect upon me. Okay. And, and I, uh, of course, her sister took over and helped raise me, which I am eternally thankful for. And my father had a serious drinking problem. He drank lots of uh Beer. <laughs> mm-hmm. He yeah. was a he was a, he was a Falstaff man. Okay. He kept him in business. Believe me. <laughs> yeah. uh, it wasn't any laughing matter, of course. But uh, but then you know that's the past, mm-hmm. and people are limited in their scope. And the best thing that can be done is to forgive them, and move on. Mm-hmm. I hold no grudge against either my father, he did the best he could, or, I, or my mother, although I never saw her again, you see. I assume that she, at some point, she went to Detroit, and I assume at some point she died. And so, uh, while that's sad, I can, uh, I can understand that's the way life sometimes is. You have to roll with the punches, my friend. And you were, you never heard from her again or anything? Well, she used to, for a couple of years, she sent presents at Christmas and my birthday. Okay. Then she wrote Miss Ruthie a letter and wanted Miss Ruthie to bring me to Detroit. Of course, that was impossible. That couldn't be. Mm -hmm. So that was the last I ever heard of her. The last thing I remember about her was that she uh, received, I received a, a pencil set at my birthday with my name you know, on it. Mm-hmm. I always remember that. And uh, I have a book which she gave me when I was a child. Hmm. I keep that. Mm-hmm. But as I said, I hold no grudge, and I, I'm just sorry that whatever happened, happened. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's the the best way to handle it. Did you? Um, I may have missed it, but did you mention did you mention why she left? Or? Well, they used to fight all the time. I see. Okay. I, I couldn't remember what they fought about. I think she wanted more freedom than my father wanted her to have. Mm-hmm. See, while he was in service. Uh, she worked at the Scruggs, Vanderbilt, and Barney in the stationary de- department on the first floor. Okay. And so uh, she was used to a lot of freedom when he was in the service. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think uh, they... W- I won't go into the details of all that. <laughs> I think that's best left unsaid. Okay. Uh, oh, to give you a breakdown, I... Uh, I, I don't know if this is significant or not, probably not. I graduated from Wyman School when I was in eighth grade. I was president of the class. Don't ask me why. Because of all the people in the class, you see, most of my life, my friend, is that I'm a loner. I'm a loner. I've always been a loner. At any rate, 
Of all the people in the class, they nominated the most popular guy and the smartest girl. And they had a tie vote. Some poor soul nominated me. Why, I don't know. <laughs> but at any rate, when we came back in again, I was the president. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen. Now, I, I did... I did get, I was one of the several people who got honors when I graduated from grade school. Then I went to Roosevelt. I graduated from there. Uh, I did get the final honors there. Uh, but at any rate, um, eventually I went to work for the post office as a clerk. And I did that for four years. Then I went into the service. I was in the military for three years and uh, worked as the uh, mail clerk for the 95th Civil Affairs Group, which I did enjoy that. And it was great training for me because I learned about other kinds of people. I was thrown with all kinds of people, and I had to learn to get along with them. And that was very valuable, mm -hmm. very valuable. When I came out, I eventually, not right away, but when I came out, I had, I had a job. I'm not, I'm not boring you, am I? No, not at all. Uh, when I came out, I, I worked for the Lambert Furniture Company as an interior decorator because I studied that when I was in service. And then I decided to go to college, and uh, I went to Oklahoma Baptist University, and uh, I really enjoyed my time there a lot. It was a wonderful school. It was a a Christian school, and the teachers were very nice, and I really had a wonderful time. Uh, I got into the theater there, and uh, and uh, so uh, I was very active on campus. Uh, of course, I was older than most of the kids, and had a just I majored in speech and drama, minored in English. And um, I was eventually uh, um, indoctrinated in, in the most prestigious organization on campus, Omar Khan Delta Kappa. That was the tops. Uh, the top 1% of the campus hmm. got to go into that. Uh, that was because I appeared in many plays. I had a number of starring roles. Uh, I was active in... Uh, debate, hmm. and uh, I was also a member of the English Honor Society. On That's where we had uh, 24 girls and four guys. Okay. You can figure that one out if you'd like. At <laughs> <laughs> any rate, it was great fun. I, had, I loved my teachers, uh, and it was a great experience. After I got out, I then went on to the University of Denver, where I... Uh, <clears throat> Got my master's degree in the theater. Uh, I don't know why I got it in the theater because I don't know that I ever thought I'd have a career in there. I just, it was just one of those things. At any rate, um, I did enjoy my time at the University of Denver. Uh, I had an opportunity to get a PhD. One of the, my professors there, Dr. Talarowski, said, uh, I'll get you through if you want to go. And uh, unfortunately, I told him, I said, I'm broke. <laughs> I don't have any money 
Forget it. <laughs> I came home to be with my aunt who had raised me. And so uh, she needed my presence. And uh, I grabbed the first job I needed because I had no money. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I went to work for the state of, state uh, employment service. Good place to be if you're looking for a job, you see. Mm-hmm. And I worked for them. And uh, the first federal job that opened up, uh, well, I grabbed it if I could get it, and I did. And so I went to work for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Now, I liked federal service. Uh, they had good benefits. That was, that was the big thing, good benefits, you mm-hmm. see. Good pension, good annual leave, good sick leave. At any rate, I worked for them. Uh, well, I have to say I liked I, – I, I was eventually put in the division – where we went out and checked students at the schools, and I enjoyed that. I got to meet a lot of people, a lot of school uh, administrators, which was fun. And I got to travel around the state. It was in the state of Missouri where I worked. Uh, The people I worked with, well, they weren't exactly exciting. Let's put it that way. Not very creative. But nonetheless, I put up with all the stuff and eventually, um, after a number of years, I retired. That's when I really began to live. And so I looked over what I was interested in and architecture. The history of architecture was what I became very much interested in. And that's when I decided that I would... Um, study it and write about it, and that's what I did. So over the years now, since that time, I have uh, written about 50 stories. Uh, we have a publication here in the state of Missouri the, of, for the Society of Architectural Historians newsletter, and I have had 39 of my articles published in that newsletter. I have written a bunch of others that have not been published. I also wrote a, a little book once. Uh, I'm not boring you, am I? No, you're not. Uh, I wrote a little book on St. Louis thoroughbred horse racing. Now, it was, you see, I know what the public wants. They want to be able to read the story fast, understanding it, Something interesting. Uh, you can write books that are wonderfully well-researched, but if they're not interesting, they won't sell. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So at any rate, I put in my little story about horse racing, which covers from the very beginning of St. Louis in the 1780s. I mentioned something. And then, of course, the first great racetrack was the Sulphur Springs, 18. 18- 35. And then I traced all the major tracks in St. Louis, and there was quite a few of them. And of course, the premier track was the fairgrounds track in North St. Louis. That was the best. Home of the uh, St. Louis Derby, Mm -hmm. which was the most important race held at the track during uh, when it was open. 
But there were other many other racetracks. I, I covered them all up to a point. And then I infused into the story lots of interesting people. That's what makes it, is the people and the horses. Hmm. I talk about some of the races, and I certainly talk about the people, like Borny Schreiber and many others. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Diamond Jim Ryan, hmm. the most notable figure of the period, the 1890s and the first five years of the 20th century. Diamond Jim Ryan. He's worth the book alone himself. Hmm. Nonetheless, I did write it. I never got it published. There are two other books on horse racing, but they're really loaded with the facts and rather uninteresting. And so uh, after I'm dead, all my papers go to the Historical Society. I'm sure that someone will pick up on it and publish it because it's good reading, mm -hmm. fun stuff. Well, David, you said that, um, you know, you've, you've always been a loner. So, um, like, why is that? Was that intentional or is it just the way it worked out? Is it a part of your personality or, or what do you think? I think that's difficult to say. You see... I was profoundly affected by the loss of my mother. Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, I kind of went into my own little world. That's why I was so surprised when they elected me president, because I, would, I lived in my own world. I created a world that was uh, steeped in European history of the 19th century. And so I had I created characters and everything like that, and that's what entertained me for many years. So it was kind of um, historical, but kind of fictional too. Like you. Oh yes. Okay. I learned all the provinces of Germany and Italy and all that kind of stuff, and then worked in little stories that seemed to weave themselves back and forth. No, I didn't write anything because I didn't even think of writing it. But it is interesting that the area where I lived, it had some old mansions. Mm -hmm. And those old mansions kind of fascinated me. And I think that's one of the reasons why I went into architecture is because of that. Because mm -hmm. I can still remember them today. I wish I had photographs of them because mm -hmm. they were quite fabulous. And I later learned, when I did my research, of course, I later learned about them and uh, who the architects are. You see, I maintain files. First of all, I specialize in the 19th century St. Louis architects. That's my specialty. Mm -hmm. And in that area, I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. The people come to me mm -hmm. to get information about it. But the point of it is, it's rich and interesting, but I have researched it with great care. Uh, I began going to the Historical Society in the downtown library, and I read... Uh, hundreds of rolls of film mm -hmm. in, in trying to find information. Uh, when I did the story on the early, early history of St. Louis University, I went to their archives there on Grand Avenue mm -hmm. and went through all their archives, read their cash books and things from the periods mm -hmm. to get the scoop. Mm -hmm. I also went to... Uh, 
the Jesuit uh, Library Museum, which was on West Pine. Mm-hmm. Yes, I dug up all the stuff. Mm-hmm. The stuff that Jesuits should have found but didn't. <laughs> that made me kind of fun. Mm-hmm. any rate, um, I traced the history of St. Louis University from its very beginning. Their first campus was located at 9th in Washington. And, of course, it began in the mid-1820s. Morton and Lavella were the first architects mm-hmm. of their campus downtown. They remained there until the 1880s. Uh, previously, before they moved, they thought about moving to North St. Louis, but that didn't come about. Then they thought about moving to North County, and that didn't come either. But designs were made for those campuses, and I discovered them. (laughs) No one knew anything about them. When I went to the Jesuit uh, uh, archives on West Pine, the head of it came to me and he said, I've got some pictures here. Do you know what they are? And I said, oh, yes. I knew immediately they were the designs for their campus out there in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And so at any rate, and so we had that published, you know, the, the designs for that. Uh, Francis D. Lee was the architect of that building. But at any rate, it was great fun. And then I went to the new campus, which was on Grand Avenue. Uh, construction of that campus began in 1884. And then that was lots of fun. And uh, I traced the, the, the Berg Hall, and of course the Scholastica, and of course the Theolicate, which are the three main buildings in a Jesuit college. Mm-hmm. The, the, they not only provide education for the students, but they also provide uh, training for the uh, Jesuits. Okay. So, and of course the great church, St. Francis Xavier's Cathedral mm-hmm. on the corner. That's number two. Okay. Number, number one was at Ninth and Lucas. Okay. And so I read through the cash books. And, of course, the Jesuits always like to say, bless their heart, oh, it was designed by this Jesuit or that Jesuit. And, and I remember going through the cash books, and there it was. St. Francis Xavier's number one. And there was listed the architect. It wasn't a Jesuit. It was Matthews and Barnett. In the 19th century, Barnett is probably the greatest architect of all. English trained, English born. He arrived in St. Louis in December of 1839. And he would be one of the transforming factors in architecture in St. Louis. He had one great nemesis, Thomas Waring Walsh, who arrived in St. Louis in 1850. He was Irish. He trained in uh, Trinity College. I'm not. So, at any rate, here are the two great names that dominate much of the 19th century. And they are people who are like night and day. And so they're very fascinating people. Now, I'm not going to go into all that. But uh, at any rate, uh, if I regret having not done something about it, 
I should have wrote a book about it. I wrote articles about them, but I didn't do a book on them, you see. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barnett was the soul of goodness and uprightness. His father was a Baptist deacon mm-hmm. in the Church of England. Hmm. Well, in a Church of England. I don't mean the Church of England. Okay. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, Thomas Waring Walsh, well, <laughs> he never told the truth in his whole life. Of course, I think he believed some of his lies. Hmm. But he is certainly a most fascinating man. Mm-hmm. And so here are the two people who dominate the, the architecture of the 19th century. They're quite fascinating. Hmm. Now, I've written articles up through, I usually end... Uh, the First World War. Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I have written things that are not in the 19th century. I wrote, for example, about Famous and Barr. You remember Famous and Barr? Mm-hmm. And the Railway Exchange Building, especially, which is one of the great buildings downtown and the first 20-story building in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. It cost um, $3.5 million when it was built. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this building is that um, there's an auxiliary building a block and a half away. There's a tunnel from the auxiliary building underneath the ground that goes into the railway exchange building. Mm-hmm. Isn't that fascinating? I think so. Mm-hmm. Those are little secrets you discover when you study all this. At any rate, I don't want to bore you with all that stuff. Boy. So it sounds like you've gotten a lot of I guess, like delight and pleasure out of studying architecture, it sounds like, huh? So it's like almost like discovering a world and exploring it and stuff like that, huh? That is correct. Yeah. It is so terribly fascinating. When I went through the history, what I did was I scanned the newspapers, you see. Mm -hmm. The Missouri Republican. I scanned the Missouri Republican from 1835 to 1913. That's a long time. But that wasn't the only paper I did. I did the Missouri Democrat. I did the the Times Journal. I did the Globe. I did the the Post. I did the Dispatch. I did many newspapers, mostly in the 19th century, but some of them into the 20th century. Until about 1913, that's when I stopped. But in addition to that, I, be, I studied the building permits, especially the building permits since 1892, when they first began to list the architects. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I studied the Daily Record. That's a publication. From 1893 to um, 1960. So, uh, David, when it comes to, like, let's say, like having a meaningful and satisfying life, like, is this pursuit, is it just pure pleasure? Or what is this a part of, like, for you, um, f- finding meaning in life? You know what I mean? Like, um, is, is it, I don't know if I'm phrasing my question just quite right, but like, is this really uh, meaningful or is it more like just um, 
something to delight in and to get caught up in, or is it like a part of what you feel like makes your life um, purposeful and so forth? Well, I would say it certainly makes discovery is something I delight in. Mm-hmm. I love to discover things, especially things that no one else knows, you see. Right. Not just my discovery, mm-hmm. the, the basic discovery of new ideas and things. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and I love beauty. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. I, I have a passion for beauty, mm-hmm. and that spells over into beautiful architecture, mm-hmm. especially architecture of the 19th century, mm-hmm. where we have uh, Greek and then we have Renaissance and uh, Romanesque and uh, all the other styles that come about. Even as uh, even up to more recently, uh, the Art Deco mm-hmm. and uh, Art Nouveau and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I love beauty. Hmm. And that is one hobby where I get to see beauty. You, you, as you observe, I'm a collector. Mm-hmm. And the, why do I collect? Because I love beauty. Mm-hmm. And of course, collecting is you, d- you discover what things are mm-hmm. and how they fit in. And so, no, I'm a pursuer of beauty. Hmm. I've always loved beauty. Beauty in music mm-hmm. and beauty in art mm-hmm. and beauty in architecture. Because I have an extensive compact disc collection with more than uh, 600 discs. So I have a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And I and I do love <clears throat> from Bach onward, Haydn, Handel, Mozart, mm-hmm. Beethoven, and even the modern ones like Sibelius and, and uh, others. Do you think that beauty tells us anything about um, you know about God or about something beyond the th- the thing itself? Um, like there's, I'll tell you a story. I was um, doing this down in the Soulard area with people on the street, and um, I asked them, um, you know, ask people if they would talk for a minute and ask them about what they found meaningful in life and so forth, and had all kinds of different answers. And I talked with one uh, person, and he said, well, I don't think there is any kind of meaning in life except just what you might fine out of it you know if, you know like there's no ultimate meaning and i i asked him um are you an atheist and he said yeah and i you know that kind of clued me in because um the way he answered and um and we got talking about different things and i asked him about beauty like is is beauty just um is it like truly beautiful or is it just our senses liking it and it could be like a pile of trash, or it could be something really um, amazing, but it's really just how we see it, or is beauty some kind of real type of thing? And if that tells us something, clues us, gives us a clue about the reality of there being a, a transcendent God or something along those lines. I don't know. It's hard to say. Of course, I am a Christian, and... A conservative. I've been a Christian and a conservative most of my life. And uh, when I first started out, I was a moderate. Mm-hmm. And then I re- found out that wasn't for me. And uh, I've been a Republican, and uh, I only voted Democratic one time. Uh, I've always supported the Republican Party. 
I follow t- politics very carefully. Um, to be absolutely, as far as beauty is concerned, well, God is perfect, and God can create beauty, and God creates beauty in different people. It is for us to find out what that beauty is and to enjoy it. As far as I'm concerned, I'm fortunate that I am blessed of God because God is at work in society. And whether you know it or not, too bad. Sometimes God allows us to see, and sometimes God doesn't. That's his prerogative. That's what makes him God. Mm -hmm. He does things that we don't understand, and so that's just the way it is. As far as like what you know about God, how do you know it? Like what, um, where does your knowledge of God come from? Well, it comes from the Bible, and of course, it comes from within the Holy Spirit. Once you become one of God's children, you get a gift the Holy Spirit. Now, how the Spirit manifests itself is, is very difficult to discern. Sometimes, as I said, God allows you to see things, and sometimes he does not. Um, you have to understand what life's all about. Most people don't. Life is tough. Life is hard. Because the world is sin, and it's unfair. You won't always get what you want. Of course, sometimes what you want is foolishness. Sometimes it is a good thing. But that's what life's all about. You have to learn to make the best with what you have and do the best you can. What? Um, so I agree with you that you know, life is suffering. You know, everyone goes through it's, and um, we're kind of unique in our present day age compared to like the people who came before us, generations before us. You know, they had we have a lot of things that kind of take away some of the suffering that they experienced. You know, but um, how? Um, so how do you not? Um, how how does your spirit stay strong in? the midst of suffering and not falling into despair and I don't know. Uh. Well, that's that's very hard to say. You, you have to know that that God is with you, but you may pray for things, but your prayers, he may not give it to you. You have to trust that in the end, he knows what's best, and that may mean you have to suffer. I suffer because I have pain Mm -hmm. in my legs and feet. Uh, I take a lot of blood pressure medicine. I take seven pills for my blood pressure to keep it from stroke area. Mm Mm-hmm. But I have pain every day. I just learn to live with it and move on. That's all you can do. 
do you, um, in your life, have you seen um, God use um, your suffering or pain for some uh, good purpose um, in, in hindsight or anything like that? Well, the greatest tragedy in my life was when Miss Ruthie, my aunt, who raised me, had a stroke. I, it happened at church at Compton Heights. Hmm. And uh, fortunately, Dan, who looks after me now, he was there and went with me to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, my friend, Uh, I have to say that my mind shut down. Hmm. Uh, I could barely remember my name. I couldn't even remember where I lived. So I had to get over that. It took a very long time. I could work every day, but after work I... Well, I came very close to having a nervous breakdown. I prayed a lot, but it didn't seem to do much good. But I said, well, whatever is, is, and just have to move along. And it was very difficult. Was I depressed? Of course. But fortunately, as I said, I was able to work. And so... Did I get comfort? Well, I didn't get much comfort from anything because I was so sad. And most of the time I don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. It's painful. Mm-hmm. The pain is still there. It, it will always be there until I pass away. And once I'm in heaven, then it's gone. But until then, it's part of life. Mm-hmm. And the shadows always are there. Mm-hmm. Some things, my friend, you never get over. Mm-hmm. That's one of them. In your way, it's like losing one of your children. It's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And that I can't say that I was particularly noble or good or anything. I just hung on the best I could. And that's all you could ever do. Mm -hmm. Just do the best you can. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So at at this point in your life, um, what do you find... Uh, joy and satisfaction in is it still the architecture or is it um, is it that type of thing or do you have do you have relationships now that you enjoy well I'm very isolated mm-hmm. I don't have much contact out in the world that's difficult but you see as a loner I've learned to live with it mm-hmm. and so that's just the way it is 
Do you wish it was different? Would you like more relationships and more content? I think that would be nice, yes, but it's not going to be true. If you haven't, if you don't realize that well, people are rather selfish. Mm-hmm. They're really concerned principally for themselves. Right. They don't really, they're not really interested in, in others. They may go to church on Sunday, but uh, that's not something they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they, um, but because they also enjoy relationships, you know, they get something out of it as well. You know. <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> the truth is, I have vast knowledge of things. Mm-hmm. Vast knowledge. Unless they're studying in the area where I know, mm-hmm. no one ever cares. Architecture doesn't mean much to any of them. Right. I think that's quite fascinating, but it is true. Right. So you are kind of, um, it might be hard to relate with you and you with them because your interests are so, are different and you... Um, oh, don't, don't get me wrong. My interests are, the things I know are very interesting. Right. Yeah. Oh, yes. They're right. not ordinary stuff. Right. But, um, but it's not the type of thing you can really con- converse with another person in who, um, like you're, you're so far along, it's hard to really, uh, for someone else to really engage with you and you with them in these things, I suppose, because well, you've... Well, they had an interest in beauty. Yeah. But most people don't. You know, I know a lot about antiques and stuff, a lot. Mm-hmm. But nobody wants to know about any of that anymore. It's a different age. You see, the age I was born is gone. Gone with the wind. It's not to be found anymore. The age of the neighborhood where it functioned. The age of the neighborhood Baptist church. It's not there anymore. It's gone. Right, yeah. And all that way of life is not to be found anymore. Mm -hmm. Fortunately for me, you see, I got to live through that. I got to enjoy that. I never realized once just how good we had it. And we had it very good. We didn't know we were poor. You see, because mm-hmm. everyone was pretty much all the same. Mm-hmm. When you went somewhere, you walked there, mm-hmm. or you took the streetcar. A lot of people didn't even have a car. Now, people look back on that, and they thought it was a boring world. No, it was a wonderful world. Mm-hmm. You knew your next-door neighbor. You went to their house, and they came to your house. And that was a, a different world. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's like great architecture. It's pretty pitiful today. The golden age has passed. Mm-hmm. It's sad. Mm-hmm. The great things that were built a long time ago, a lot of them aren't there anymore. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Hmm. But I've seen it, mm-hmm. at least some of it, even though it's now gone. But others will never see it. Mm-hmm. 
They will never be able to shop at Famous and Bar. Or go to Miss Hollings restaurant. You ever heard of Miss Hollings? Mm-hmm. It was a marvelous place. Hmm. The best food for a cafeteria in the world. Hmm. Quite special. Mm-hmm. It's all gone. Mm-hmm. The kids today, they have no idea what they've missed. Mm-hmm. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. But it's the truth. You know, you were mentioning um, that people are not really that interested in beauty. Um, I, and what came to my mind is like what people are interested in, like the universal type of thing, seems to be a good story um, that always engages people, it seems like. And it's kind of a universal thing, do you think? I know good stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because I read them in the newspapers. I've discovered many stories that I could tell mm-hmm. if I had the time and inclination to do so. Yeah. Fabulous stories. Stories that you couldn't make up. Mm-hmm. Stories that are unusual, different. Mm-hmm. You see, the history listed in the newspapers, while it's not always accurate, mm-hmm. they were always looking for good stories. And frequently... They found them. <laughs> That's the important thing. The age we live in today, well, I don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. As I said, it's passed me by. That's okay. Because mm-hmm. the world I've been in and the world I've discovered are better than what you find today. Mm-hmm. Um, you were mentioning how people didn't really drive or own a car back then. Uh, and I remember you being a walker when I was a child, and you know you lived near the church and and things. Uh, did you own a car at uh, at a period of your life, or have you oh. always been like public no. transportation? Oh no, 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 no! I I had my car era. Did you? Okay. My first car was purchased when I went to work for the uh, post office. Okay. Yeah. My first car, which I purchased in 1958, was a Chevrolet, Mm -hmm. a 1955 Chevrolet Bel Air convertible. Mm -hmm. It was blue and white with uh, blue uh, leather upholstery, power windows, and power seat. Mm-hmm. It was a one-owner car, and the owner had been some student who uh, uh, in Ladue. Okay. It, was a, it cost $1,500. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful car. Yeah. Beautiful car. In two years or three years, I can't remember, I moved up from that car to the second convertible, and that was a Chrysler New Yorker convertible. Mm-hmm. It was white with uh, tangerine leather upholstery mm-hmm. and black uh, padded dash, black shag carpeting inside. And of course, I had the, uh, what do you call it? The uh, windshield was one of those that went over your head mm-hmm. and it was tinted. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the car was 21 feet long. Wow. <laughs> it was a white, it was white. Mm-hmm. 
and I had I had skirts put in where the you know where the wheels are. Mm -hmm. It was a beauty. Mm -hmm. Got about twelve miles to a gallon, mm -hmm. but it was a beautiful car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those were my first two cars, mm -hmm. and, and uh, I, I loved both of them. Of course, convertibles you have to replace the top all the time. Next, of course, and I was in the service when I came out of service. I did not have a car. And it was a long time before I, a long time before I got into the car. Uh, in 19, uh, 1960, was it? No, 1973, I entered a new experience. I bought a Harley Davidson motorcycle. Oh, wow. It was, I, I, I saw this film at the movie house. It was called Electric Glide in Blue. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was the title or not, but that was what it was. So I went to the motorcycle place and said, that's what I want. And so I bought a, a Harley-Davidson FLH, 1,200cc's, and uh, it was a beauty. I had to learn to ride it. I almost got killed learning to ride it, but I mean, that was neither or not. Oh, I remember taking it home. Uh, I didn't ride it. It took me home. Let's put it that way. <laughs> mm -hmm. Lucky I made it. Mm -hmm. But eventually I learned to ride it, and I enjoyed it very much. I put 22,500 miles on that bike hmm. before I decided it was time to sell it. Mm -hmm. And it was stunning. Yeah. People, because what I did was... Uh, it was covered with chrome. Mm -hmm. the uh, The motor and everything was had chrome all the way from the back to the front. It was I had it decked out fabulously beautiful. Hmm. People used to stop me and tell me how beautiful it was. Mm -hmm. And when they were going down the highway, it, it, it and the sun would hit it, it sparkled. <laughs> she was a beauty. Mm. I did like the machine, but I rode alone. I didn't have any group that I rode with because I didn't know any group, mm -hmm. but I did enjoy my bike. Mm -hmm. It was lots of fun. And so uh, uh, I didn't have a car or bike for a very long time. And then, when, of course, when Ruth got sick, that's when I got a car. Okay. Because I needed a car because I needed to take care of Ruth, mm -hmm. you know, visit her in the nursing home and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was, um, let's see, in 1988, I was on the way down to the nursing home to look after Ruth. I used to go down every night. Mm -hmm. And uh, this motorcycle pulled in front of me. At that time, I was driving a Pontiac or some piece of junk. I don't know what it was. And I said, look at that thing. I've never seen anything quite like it. I said, what is that? It was a very large bike, and it was a Honda Goldwing. And uh, it was a, a bike that was, um, well, it was blue, and uh, it was huge. And so I... I went to the motorcycle dealer that looked this over and um, six cylinders. Hmm. 
a regular transmission, not belt-driven. Okay. It yeah. had it all. Mm -hmm. um, so I said to the guy, how much? And then I said to him, I'll take it. <laughs> I said, you'll have to take me over a couple times to the park. It was out in the county, out, out, uh, out on Manchester. Because I need to practice before I mm -hmm. take that baby over or I'll get killed. <laughs> so I practiced, and pretty soon I had it all fixed up, and I put on there a uh, two-way talkie-talkie and uh, had a tape deck, you know, play tapes. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a fabulous machine. I got it all decked up, and uh, then I found out about Chapter J and Festus, so I joined the Honda Goldwing chapter mm -hmm. and rode with them. They were crazy, of course. <laughs> Believe me, they were crazy. But it was a very interesting experience for me. Mm -hmm. See, normally I don't associate with those kind of people. And so that was a fabulous experience hmm. uh, of doing that. And I did that for a number of years until I came to the point and said, well, now it's time to give that up. Mm -hmm. um, you, when you ride, well, I wanted to say one thing about the Honda. It was 1,500 cc's, mm -hmm. six cylinders. It could do anything. Uh, it had reverse, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a beautiful machine. The thing I liked the very best about it, my friend, was that the foot brake operated not only the back wheel, but partially the front wheel. Okay. It made a big difference mm -hmm. on how you control the bike. Of course, anyone who rides a motorcycle tells you that you control the speed of the bike by gearing, not by using the brake. Mm -hmm. The sooner you learn that, the smarter you're going to be. Hmm. But unfortunately on a bike, you can't afford to make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mistakes could spell execution. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So I, I took a great many trips. I had the bike a very long time. I rode it for about 35,000 miles mm -hmm. before I gave it up. One day I said, time to, time to move on. Mm -hmm. But I certainly enjoyed it. It was a, my machine, I gave it a name. It was Pegasus. Mm -hmm. Actually, though, the first machine was Pegasus 1. This was Pegasus 2. Okay. But, I mean, I really loved it. It was quite lots of fun. And so um, another great experience that I've had. I've been very fortunate. I've had many, many unusual experiences. Chapter J used to ride all over the south, southern part of the state. Mm -hmm. When uh, Sunday afternoon they would go for a ride, Two or three hundred miles. Hmm. Uh, it wasn't three miles. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, it was great fun. They took a lot of chances, which fortunately nothing happened. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them did get into difficulties, though. Hmm. But then they were not always wise. Mm -hmm. But you see, normally I wouldn't associate with people like that. 
And not that they were bad people, they weren't really bad people. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think any of them were Christians, don't get me wrong. But um, they had their limitations, Let me, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So that was another great experience that I had that I look back with delight. You know, um, well, just to kind of, before we um, wrap things up, I just wanted to see if you had any thought, thoughts, and these these questions have to do more like um, just life in general. So um, I guess, for, for example, here's a question. I don't think I've ever asked this question, but I've heard someone else ask it. And like, if you could have a billboard out there along Highway 55, and it could... Um, and you could just see anything on it. Um, you have any thoughts about what you would want to put on it? Like what your message to the world would be, I guess? <laughs> well, I would say that it is important that you know who God is and that you need to have a relationship with God and uh, and your best if you let if you are in the will that God has for you the will that God and that's not always easy to find out Um, but you will be happiest if you're doing what God wants you to do, and um, I would say that's what I would tell people. And I would warn them that life is unfair. It's difficult. You have to adjust to the situation that presents itself. Try to find out what is beautiful in the world. Discover for yourself where the pity resides. And therefore, beauty can help you enjoy life. And I don't know if that's profound or wise, but that's what I would have to say as a, if you want to throw some philosophy into it. Yeah. Uh, I've been fortunate. God has blessed me, even though I've made many mistakes. There was a time, you know, when I was in graduate school, I thought I might be a stage performer or a theatrical director. Uh, Eventually I decided that wasn't for me. But that's what people do. They change as time goes on. Mm -hmm. They adjust to whatever presents itself. Sometimes they have to start over. Sometimes they have to remake their life. Now, I don't know that I've ever remade my life, but uh, I have, I'm not unhappy as I come to the end of it. I see each day as another opportunity, but I'm here by myself, of course. That makes, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. But I have music, I have art. I'm better off than most. And I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you, Will? Yeah, that makes sense to me. <laughs> what makes sense to me, what you said about like knowing God, that seems like really 
foundational, and then finding, looking for beauty. I think that that's a pretty neat thing to keep in mind. Um, so anyway, I think... Well, especially since it can be musical. It, it can be a Broadway musical like Anything Goes by Cole Porter. Or it can be a, a building that's perhaps no longer there. Mm-hmm. Or it can be uh, that that carnage of vases there. Mm-hmm. You see, that's it manifests itself in different ways. The, the problem with people today is they haven't discovered what is beautiful yet. Hmm. They haven't bothered to search out what they accept is what they're told. They, you want to know what's wrong with the society today? I'll tell you. They don't think for themselves. They don't search on the journey for what is truly beautiful. Hmm. They think Ikea is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Ikea is not beautiful. It's serviceable. Mm-hmm. It may be nicely arranged, but it's not beautiful. Mm-hmm. You see, you have to go and find out for yourself what's beautiful in the world. It's a journey. Mm-hmm. Today, kids, they're told stuff and that's all they know. They don't investigate. They don't think for themselves. Is this true? Is there something else I should know about this? You see, there are ideas that people promote, but they don't even know if they're worthwhile. Because you have to learn what? You learn how to think for yourself. People don't do that. We may have the best education, supposedly, the best education in the world. People don't think for themselves. Hmm. You go to college to learn two things. You learn how to think for yourself, and you learn how to find knowledge so that what you think has some truth to it. That's why you go to school. You learn to communicate by speech, and you learn to write by word. And that's what counts. And people aren't doing that today. (laughs) The professors tell them to think a certain way, and that's the way they go. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Those professors don't know know much more than you know. (laughs) You know, you know, you have professors who will tell you they don't believe in God. Well, you always say to them, well, how do you know? How do you know there's no God? Why don't you kill yourself and see what will happen? You might be surprised. Of course they won't do that. Right, yeah. You see, people believe what they're told. No. You study, you consider all points of view, and move on. I used to call the modern age the age of the zombie. They're told what to think because they don't think for themselves. You know, in the, the little scenario you, you gave there about the professor doesn't believe in God, what if, and you were to ask, you know, you know 
why not or something along those lines. Well, what if he, he were to turn the question around and say, well, why do you believe in God? Like, what what kind of response would you give for, like, the confidence that you have in, um, in the things that you believe? Well, first of all, you have the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible tells you that there is a God. But the important thing to remember about God is God is an experience. Uh, you don't really know God until you become one of his children. Once the Holy Spirit is there in your life, the Spirit of Truth, that's the Holy Spirit, you know, mm-hmm. then you have a reminder within you that is forever there reminding you of things. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to remind you of things. Now, that doesn't mean you'll always be obedient to the Holy Spirit. You certainly will not, because you want your way. Everybody wants their way. It's, it's like a national sickness. That's part of the human condition. They want their way. Preachers want their way. Christians want their way. And they often think their way is right. And often, it's not. Just because you think it doesn't mean God's at work at it. Mm-hmm. Usually, if God's in it, he'll bless it. So that's one way you can tell if God's in it. Mm-hmm. I've been a lot of preachers. I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have the highest opinion of a lot of preachers. Mm-hmm. I think they spend too much time thinking they're right and they're not consulting God. Mm-hmm. It happens all the time. My former church, it happened at. That guy who took the church in, in the wrong direction, oh, he thought he was right, of course. Mm-hmm. And when he saw the signs that he wasn't, He didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, judgment fell. Had a heart attack and he died. Now, God doesn't always interfere in life that way. But sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. So when you're trying to do what God wants, you better make sure it's what God wants. But God has a way of opening doors for you. When he's ready. And so that's helpful. Now, like in Wendy, I could see, for example, you know Wendy's app. Mm-hmm. I could see where, where God opens a door for him. And Wendy can see that, too. Mm-hmm. But that's what you have to look for. Oh, no, we're not perfect. God knows we're not perfect. God knows has great mercy which I'm thankful for. We all need his mercy mm-hmm. because we all have a tendency to stray. Mm-hmm. Long as we do the best we can, God is very forgiving. Long, especially if we seek his forgiveness. If we don't seek his forgiveness, we're in trouble. We're also very foolish. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, does that answer your question? I don't know if it does or not. It does, yeah. The presence, what happens is you may go away from God sometime and, and ooh, ooh, 
You know, everybody gets angry. And, and so... Uh, uh, yeah, it's better. Everybody gets angry at God sometime. Everybody has doubts about God sometime. That's the human condition. That's just the way it is. And, of course, the minute we die, we'll know the truth. Mm-hmm. I always like to, people always quiz me about it, and I said, well, if it turns out to be opposite what I thought, I won't know it anyway. So it won't make any difference. But what if I'm right, you see? Mm-hmm. I have everything to gain and nothing to lose. Uh, and so that's the way it is. No, nobody's perfect. We live in the real world. The, the, the liberals, they always want to make everything perfect, but the world can't be perfect because it's full of sin. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it is. We cannot make it perfect ever because God's not in charge immediately. In other words, what I'm saying is he's not ruling directly over us. Mm-hmm. We have other people ruling, sinners ruling over us. You have to remember that. Perfection is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Never. The only way perfection can happen is if God rules direct. And he tells you what to do, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. Why? Because he knows what's best. He knows a great deal more than I do. And I'm sure glad he does. Mm-hmm. Because my knowledge is limited. You see God on top, and, and we're down at the bottom. And, and that's just the arrangement. That's okay. I can live with that. Well, thanks, David. I think we'll just wrap it up here. So I appreciate your time. And uh, it's good talking with you and just getting to know you better. So thank you very much. Well, you're welcome, Will. If you use a podcast app like iTunes, please give a review of Conversations About Life. 